and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ian Dunt. Our guest today is one of the giants of British politics uh, in the Thatcher governments of the 80s. He was the strongest voice advocating one nation politics in the party. He also championed right to buy and forced an unwilling government to pay attention to Liverpool, then in economic decline. His leadership challenge in 1990 effectively ended both Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership and his own hopes of leading the Tories, but he stayed on as an important part of the major government. And in later years, he was one of the most powerful pro-European voices in the Tory party, speaking at many a Remain rally. In 2019, he had the Conservative whip suspended for saying he'd vote Lib Dem over Brexit. It's Lord Heseltine. Hello there, how are you? I'm fine, but it is not true to say that I had a whip suspended because I talked about voting Lib Dem. I, I lost the whip for quite different reason, and that was that I voted in the House of Lords for a policy which said that the Parliament had to be properly consulted about the European deal, and I lost the whip. Needless to say, the party came round to that view about three weeks later, but the whip was never restored. <laughs> oh dear, I've started trading in post-truth before I even got in the first question. That, that's a record for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is an interesting interview for me in which I think my, my career is now coming full circle. When I was 18 years old, as this sort of proper red-blooded trot, I was working in my first job in a bookshop and your memoirs came out. And I got an awful lot of trouble because I kept on putting them in the crime section rather than the autobiography section. Now, I, I must have moved significantly since then. And perhaps you have too, because now apparently we're on the same side. Is it quite odd at the moment finding yourself suddenly allied with people on the left and the centre and, and, and things like that because of the Brexit issue? No, because uh, a lot of my political life has been about inner city life and uh, politics. And there mm. I working with uh, people from across the political spectrum. Indeed, the interesting thing was is how much uh, the politics didn't matter when you got into the detail of what you had to do. How about the people cheering you at sort of people's vote marches, who I suspect, I mean, I could be wrong, but I suspect many of them would have been the ones booing you in the 80s. Does, Does that make something of an impact? I never thought about that. Um, you're quite right. There were people from uh, uh, all parties, and the correspondence reflected that. There were the odd people who said, you know, that they've been opponents of mine all their lives, but they like what I was now saying. But on the other hand, there were huge numbers of conservatives who were distraught at the Brexit decision and wanted mm-hmm powerful voice to maintain the integrity of post-war conservative policy. Brexit's, I mean, obviously it's taken place now, but you've still got that sort of huge network of pro-European groups, you know, some in very local areas, some in major cities. A lot of them are sort of trying to work out the conversations I have with them, really people trying to work out what, what their role is, like what it is that they should be doing in this period. What, what, what advice would you give them? Oh, keep the faith. Brexit is a disaster. And uh, there is no upside to what has happened. Uh, The only sensible thing for Britain is to reapply to join. Now, that's not going to happen any day soon. I believe myself that it will happen and it should happen. And that um, it's important that people who argued all those years for the European vision should maintain their faith. The need for closer cooperation, for interrelationships, is not going to get any less. It's going to get more, in my view. What about the kind of things that would need to happen domestically in order to make that a more viable possibility? The important thing is 
the impact of events on public opinion. In the end, political parties are about winning. They tend to go where the wind of public opinion is blowing. In a sense, we have to go through this period in which people can see for themselves the advantages of a closer relationship with Europe. Uh, and, And they will only do that if events demonstrate that that is a sensible policy. You had quite a, I mean, you obviously had a competitive relationship with Margaret Thatcher. I mean, it must strike you as odd when you look at sort of the way that Margaret Thatcher is treated now by um, sort of both sides of the debate, really. Because, I mean, you see some sides on Remain, you know, the, the image is obviously her with, with the jumper with all the European flags on. And then, but then, of course, there's on the Brexit side, there's this sense of sort of finalising some kind of Thatcherite agenda. What do you think she would have made of the decision to leave the, the single market? Oh, she'd never have done it. She would have pandered to public opinion, but she would never have made so reckless a decision, so undermining of British self-interest. I mean, Margaret was a a, a politician. I mean, she is that awful definition of uh, of a politician, a man or woman who waits to see which way the crowd is running and then rushes in front and says, follow me. Uh, and in the end, hmm. there's an element of that about uh, about the nature of politics. You you are uh, articulating moods and attitudes and opinions that reflect what the public want to hear. Uh, and Margaret was good at that in in uh, reflecting certain very clear views. It all went wrong over over Europe, as I as I say. But it would be accurate to say that she was actually pandering to a an ingrained view in the British people that somehow we're apart from all that and we're different and we're independent and you know all those sort of things that you hear people talk about. There were two Margarets. That's the thing you have to understand. The first is the the gut Margaret, the reactive Margaret. That's where her opinions started. You had to go through that phase and get to the mind, Margaret, where the <laughs> mind the problem as opposed to the prejudices. And if you do that persistently and hopefully politely, it, it, she, she was an immensely rational person. You had not to allow yourself to be bamboozled into her gut reaction to many issues. It's funny, isn't it? Because there's this sort of image of of Margaret Thatcher as just sort of pure uh, principle, whether you agree with the principles or not, or whether you're left or right, that it was ultimately, you know, there's a government of conviction and it just pushed up because basically it sort of frames the whole of the Thatcher era by the prism of the minor strike. But there's plenty of areas where that government was actually quite pragmatic. And I mean, one of them would be sort of local council race relations and issues like that. Do you think that there's a sort of like the message that many younger conservatives, I'm thinking of the sort of MPs in the Commons right now, have taken from Thatcher is from that first image of her, that sort of like just unwavering sort of principle and and, and with with little pragmatism there and forgotten that sort of the, the layers of complexity of what operated in that government at the time. Yes, I think that there is a significant element of that and her fans which embrace serious parts of the British media, perpetuate an image. But those of us who were there perhaps don't go along with the simplicity, almost the naivety of that interpretation. I'm really quite a good example of it because this purist, (laughs) satirite, non-interventionist sort of cause, which we hear all about, 
actually didn't stand up to any scrutiny when you were part of the process. And certainly, in my experience, Margaret's government behaved as most governments do, very much practically. I mean, I parade the whole inner city agenda in which I was deeply involved. I mean, it was as interventionist as anything could be. I mean, I spent three weeks in Liverpool, more or less sort of trying to manage an economy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you're given the freedom in the city of Liverpool for your work to rejuvenate it. And sort of more generally provided this framework for regional revival. Is there any part of the levelling up agenda in policy terms that you see work? I mean, do you see any policy there at all that would make a difference? The levelling up agenda in words is extremely impressive. The thing that is rather difficult is the absence of any deeds. The devolution agenda, frankly, at the moment is dead. Um, You can do, I can do, all of us can probe into Whitehall where we all have friends and contacts and we can, you can discover very rapidly that the, the, the agenda to really empower the English cities to revive and have a major input into their own economic fortunes and destinies, that agenda is dead, uh, uh, tragically, in my view. But uh, And, and it, it shows a complete lack of understanding as to what needs to be done to revive the British economy and make it fit for purpose as a world-class player. Um, the same old stuff is going on. Central government devises wheezes, packets of money, uh, distributes them centrally, um, and, and as I said, the agenda to empower the, the, the economies themselves, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, all the great cities of yesteryear, uh, which made this country, they're, they're just left without any serious involvement in their own recovery. We're waiting on the budget sort of next month, um, and there's more sort of increasing chatter you'll hear from sort of Tories of the need to rein in spending once the pandemic is over. Um, I mean, you sort of see rearing into view a, a clash, really, between that levelling up sort of agenda, or at least the rhetoric around it, and the sort of more traditional, sort of fiscally conservative, right, we need to rein in some of this spending going on. I mean, what, do, do you think that is going to be a clash within the Tory party? And if so, which side do you think is going to win? Whatever happens... The Chancellor is going to have to get a grip on the economy. He is overspending on a scale which is completely understandable in the circumstances of COVID, but is, would be completely unjustifiable in any ongoing uh, management of the economy. You cannot just borrow on the scale that we are borrowing now. Whatever the, the regime that he comes up with, there will still be huge budgets of money relevant to regenerating the economy in the forward programs. There will be the education budget, the housing, the transport, a range of other uh, important budgets. The problem is that they're not coordinated. They're not based on a strategy worked out in the interests of Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, Leeds, whatever it may be, Uh, and interrelated in order to stimulate additional expenditure from the private and the third sector. And if you were to do that with a local strategy, then you can begin the very long-term process of levelling up, of regeneration of the areas. I mean, yesterday's Financial Times about Liverpool was marvellous. But let's have no illusions 
It was a leveling up process that started in the 1980s and has been pursued with varying degrees of, of enthusiasm ever since. So leveling up, isn't, there's no short-term solution to it. It is a painstaking, detailed, persistent pursuit of advantage based on local knowledge and experience and leadership. To try and turn this into a sort of doctrinal spend, don't spend, is, is a silly thing to do. The important thing is to use the resources we can afford as effectively as they can be used. And that is what is missing. It's the lack of coordination and the lack of leadership locally that is the weakness in the present government's position. What do you make of Keir Starmer? Would he, would he trouble you if you were the Tory leader? <laughs> I think almost certainly any Labour leader would trouble me, although I have actually created <laughs> very close relationships with local Labour leaders. When I started the regeneration of East London and created the Docklands Development Corporation, I made a former Labour cabinet minister, Bob Mellish, the deputy chairman, because this reflected, in my view, first the realities on the ground. They were, there were a large number of Labour councillors and councils. But secondly, I wanted partnership. I, I wanted to stop this shouting at each other from tops of mountains and get down into the valley and work on the details. So whilst I brought in a top capitalist as chairman, the number two was Bob Mellish, a former Labour housing minister. And on the development corporation, I put all the Labour leaders of the local boroughs involved. Uh, again, I made sure the private sector had a majority. But out of that came a partnership. And if you follow all my inner city activities since, that has been the model that has worked. And, do, and what do you think? Do you think he's doing a good job, Keir Starmer? I mean, he's getting a lot of sort of flack at the moment for, for a sense of drift. He you know, should be further ahead in the polls, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what, what do you make of his performance? Well, look, it's not my job to try and help the Labour Party. Uh, they must make up their own minds. And uh, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice and civilized man. Uh, you know, I'm in the business of, of advancing the philosophies associated with my conservative background. <laughs> okay. You, you don't have any opinion on him at all? I'm sure he's a nice guy. <laughs> okay. What about people like the sort of the CRG, the COVID research group, the parliamentary party on this? It, it feels a bit sometimes like... There's this some of the instinctive anti-expertise views that were shown during the Brexit debate have carried over to a minority of the Tory parliamentary party, but a fairly substantial minority in, in their discussion around lockdown, the discussion around COVID transmission. Well, that's the impression that you certainly get from the outside. Parliamentary democracy is a very sophisticated thing. And there have always been people at the extremes of opinions on both sides of the divide in the House of Commons. Uh, and, and actually, that's rather a sensible thing because it allows people who have those views outside to believe that they are being represented. But by and large, the processes of government deliver the sort of society that we want. They reflect, by and large, the attitudes that people hold. In the end, the vast majority of decisions are taken on a practical basis by people trying to do their best. And they tend to be towards the centre ground, or at least they recognise that you have to take the centre ground with you. And, what, and finally, what do you see your role as in, in the next 
few years? My role? Mm -hmm. Survival. (laughs) It's a very good aspiration, I think, for the time being. Is there anything that gives you hope about sort of the situation that we're in right now, the things that give you hope for the future? Well, I hope, but uh, I mean, it's, it's now a rather forlorn hope that Boris Johnson will remember the role he played as mayor of London, which I admired, and trust the leaders of our great cities with a degree of power and an offer of proper partnership. I know all the arguments against it. Do we want all these Labour mayors? Will they cause us trouble? But they'll be there whatever you do. You'll be much better employing them in partnership and if you devise the partnerships fairly, then I think that the upside is, uh, well, frankly, is essential if we're going to make the adjustments that Brexit is going to force on us anyway. Michael Hazeltine, thank you very much for joining us in the bunker. Listeners, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That would be very much appreciated. Um, and so, by the way, we're backing us on Patreon, where you can get the podcast early and without adverts. You can just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. There's a new Bunker Podcast every weekday morning, so do subscribe, and we're going to see you next time. Stay safe. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.